Welcome back to the Illinois Agronomy Update. I'm your host, Troy Kazire, here at Hertz Farm Management in Geneseo, Illinois. Today, we've got Eric Snodgrass with us. He is a science fellow with Nutrien uh, down in Champaign, Illinois. Eric, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You bet. Appreciate you uh, taking the time to share your insight here. Um, why don't you, to start off with, I guess, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and then and then tell us uh, a little bit about your role with Nutrien and what that entails. Yeah, sure. So started off my career uh, as a professor at the University of Illinois. I was teaching courses in atmospheric sciences there for about 14 years after doing my graduate work there. And I started a small company along the way. And uh, that company uh, merged with another one in town where we started doing a lot of weather insights into agronomy and Nutrien came along in 2018 and really liked the technology we built, thought it could really be useful to their customer growers and decided to acquire us. So they made an offer, said, hey, you want to come with us or do you want to stay at the, at the university? I said, you know what, let's, let's give it a shot. So I, I decided to go. And uh, so what I do for them every day is uh, I basically analyze uh, weather, forecast the weather as it pertains to ag and ag only. And I do it on an international uh, kind of scale here. So we look everything from the farm level all the way up to the globe and just try to look for those things that, you know, are often high impact. We look for the things that could, you know, um, impact the bottom line. And we look at it, uh, like I said, from South America to Australia, from China all the way to the United States. And we just try to keep our finger on the pulse of what's going on to keep folks informed. So yeah, I, I'm a daily weather forecaster that also has quite a bit of research background in the subject too. Well, excellent. Well, yeah, thanks for sharing that. And that's exactly what we wanted to talk with you uh, or talk to you about today. And obviously with, uh, you know, guys getting ready to, to, to plant when, when things get fit, we'd like to kind of look ahead for the next few weeks and, and, uh, or several weeks really, and, and kind of see what, what patterns you're seeing develop that are going to affect um, uh, planting season here in the Midwest. And I, and I guess to start with, before we really start looking ahead, um, you know, been a lot of severe weather in, in different parts of the country lately. Uh, why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, we, you know, really this just here in the middle of March, um, the, the southern part of the United States has been absolutely lit up with severe weather. We had a four day event that started in Texas and finished in the Carolinas and along the way produced over 80 tornadoes. Uh, some of those were, were quite, quite dramatic when we got to see them, um, you know, some video evidence of what they look like. But uh, yeah, that we're going to see another big high impact storm hitting the plains uh, here again in the next week. And so it seems to be that time of year where things start to ramp up. You know, we're currently sitting above average on our annual tornado count. So by the end of the year, we expect to have about 1,400 reports of tornadoes. And with the 80 we just added on last week, we moved above the, uh, the, the 20 year average. So it's really getting going here. And what happens is, is from now through you know, June and July, that severe weather risk just keeps pushing north every single day. As we get a little more heat from the sun, the sun angles get a little higher, the days are getting a little longer. And, and you know, that's, that also signals the start to a great season. But, you know, we, we tend in the state of Illinois to be dodging raindrops uh, as we go into a spring planting season. In fact, let me just give you a stat here to think about. We went back and looked um, at the state of Illinois and planting uh, conditions with respect to rainfall. And I use the definition that the USDA uses on a, what they call a workable field day. What we found was that due to some increased precipitation, both in frequency and amount, 
in the uh, in the months of April and May that on average, the state of Illinois lost about five workable field days per April and May. So uh, it doesn't really matter because we've got bigger, better, faster equipment, but it's an interesting statistic to look back over the last 40 plus years and see those changes. So you're right. We're at that time of year where the atmosphere is about to turn itself over. And as it turns over, we tend to get a lot of uh, adverse weather. Well, and that's that's interesting. So, you know, we you talk about we've got another storm here coming and, and you know, obviously the trend has been to more and more precipitation mm-hmm. during that time of year. But, uh, you know, right now when you when you're out and about, and you talk to guys, I was actually just down at one of my farms in Bloomington uh, here about a week and a half ago and, and they were doing some tiling and, and they were down into the subsoil and the clay was dry and crumbling Um you know, there were when you talk to a lot of guys around the state, we, we really needed this moisture we've been getting. And uh, when you look at that drought monitor uh, and kind of what it's been doing, it seems like out west, it's just uh, it's kind of been growing in in area and in severity and, and kind of working its way east. So what uh, as you look ahead, what kind of patterns are you seeing develop uh, with regard to the to that moisture over the next several weeks? Sure. So, you know, in Illinois, we we were in a pretty substantial snow drought, right? Until just after Groundhog's Day, many places hadn't even seen any snow up until that point across the state. And then after that, the rest of February and much of March, we've we've done a lot to return moisture to that to that unfrozen part of the of the topsoil there. But you're right, you dig down there pretty deep. We still we still have some drier conditions down there. But you're right, you get west of the Mississippi River, just keep going west. You'll get out into some places that uh, throughout much of this winter and early spring, we've continued to see degradation. Of the drought. So we've currently got a little bit better than 70% of the land area in the lower 48. That is from the D0 category of drought. We call that uh, abnormally dry all the way up to the D4 category, which is called exceptional drought. And it's anchored really over the Southern Plains. So there in Texas, New Mexico, Western Oklahoma, Western Kansas, Colorado, Western Nebraska, getting up into parts of the Western Dakotas and Montana, and then just keep going west, go all the way over to California, where right now California is having its driest start to any year since 1893. So we see, you know, so much of the land area to the West struggling with drought while the Eastern Corn Belt, think about the river basins, uh, like the the Illinois River Basin, the Ohio River Basin, then you get south of Illinois through the whole of the lower Mississippi River Valley. And most of those tributaries are flooding right now after all the very, very heavy rains we've seen. So it just seems to be split right in the middle of the country. You go West, you're going to encounter more drought. You go East, you're going to be seeing much more uh, in the way of flooding. And uh, it's that time of year where this really starts to matter. Yeah, absolutely. And and now I've been reading a little bit about this, about the La Nina and how that's setting up and, and seems to be, uh, from what I understand, and maybe I'm wrong, kind of kind of growing in strength or, or getting a little bit more solidified. Uh, what, what are you seeing there and how is that going to affect, uh, affect Midwest weather going forward? Yeah, you know, there's two things I think about with La Ninas. And the first thing we have to remember about them is that they they typically peak in winter. So we had, uh, the first thing is, we had a La Nina last winter. We had one this winter. And in both cases, in spring, they faded. Now, that's that's very typical behavior. So the two things to think about are, are we going to have another La Nina next winter? And what happens to it in between, like right now? 
So this one we're dealing with peaked in December and then it faded really hard in Feb uh, through February and then made a big surge coming back in the month of March. Now that surge is just about over, which means we're going to continue to watch the La Nina fade as we go forward. But why do we even care about it, right? I mean, why do we talk about La Nina? Well, La Nina is basically when the trade winds are really fast across the equatorial Pacific. And what that does is it tends to kind of steal some of the jet stream momentum in the westerlies, which means the jet stream tends to get a bit more loopy. It tends to get stuck. It tends to not progress as fast as we want it to. And therefore, we end up getting these weather patterns that um, well, they, they just kind of persist rather than break and move forward. So we don't want that. We, we want to get rid of La Nina as fast as possible if we can. And uh, what we want to see out of here is much more regular behavior out of the, the Pacific jet stream uh, that eventually hits North America. So let's come back to that first question I posed, which was, are we going to continue to see La Nina conditions? Well, if you, if you kind of look around globally at all the different weather forecasting centers that are out there uh, looking longer term, most of them faded away by the time we get into late spring and early summer, back to what we call neutral conditions. There's only a handful, really only one weather forecast model and its ensembles that predict La Nina to persist all summer and then go into next fall and winter with another, a third La Nina. Now that's happened in the past, but it's quite uncommon. Usually what we say is La Ninas are double dippers. They have one in this winter, then they have one the following winter, and then they tend to fade. So why do we care? Well, La Ninas increase the risk of drought expansion in the Midwest once we get into summer. And so therefore all eyes are going to be paying attention to whether or not this one can fade and fade quickly, or if it lingers around and affects the weather patterns, because if it does, it increases our drought risk, you know, across the ice states as we get into uh, the summertime period. Interesting. And so, you know, you, you made a comment. I, I, I was uh, at one of your presentations at a, uh, I believe it was a land value seminar here a few weeks ago. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you talked about, you know, just, just how far ahead we really can reliably look at weather. Now, obviously patterns and overall climate are a little bit different, but sure. you talked about how, how far ahead we can reliably predict what we're going to be seeing. Well, can you talk to us a little bit about that? That was, that was interesting. Yeah, you bet. You know, you think about what a grower needs in order to make decisions, right? And I'm talking about on-field decisions. We're coming up on spring planting. I got to know soil temperatures. I need to know when my last frost is going to be. I got to pay attention to the timing and amount of precipitation at a hyper-local level right here on this field so that I could be the most efficient at what I want to do and get the crop in at the right time and, and, and get it off uh, you know, at a good pace. Okay, so how far out can we predict those exact conditions on, on your field? Well, there's some fun stats I can give you. Some of the best weather forecasting models in the world right now, uh, if you look out there, uh, three days in a three-day forecast, they're 97% accurate. You go out there five days, we're about 85 to 90% accurate. You go out there seven days, now we're talking about uh, under 80% accurate. And a 10-day forecast, to be honest with you, it's about 50-50. So therefore, we've got your planting window pretty well forecast to about seven days out. But beyond that, we start, things get a little more speculative. So what we don't attempt to do is we don't attempt to predict exactly what's going to happen on your field with respect to a high temperature, a low temperature, a precip. So what we do is we say, what's the probability of you being warmer or colder than average or wetter than drier? And then we can do pretty well out to about two, maybe at times out to about three weeks. 
but generally about two weeks is where we're at. What's great about all of this, and I think this is what I presented to you back there, was that we studied going all the way back to World War II, what the limits of predictability will be. In other words, how far out will we ever, with perfect technology, be able to perfectly forecast the weather on your field, you know, within a reasonable amount of air, like 3%. And what, what, what we found is that due to the chaotic behavior of, of weather systems around the world, um, that limit will never surpass 21 days. So anything that you get that's a forecast beyond that time period, usually what we're doing is we're basing it off just a few things like ocean temperatures or soil moisture or, or changes in the Pacific jet stream pattern. And what it allows us to do is to give you an idea on, hey, should we be seeing a warmer April or a cooler April? What about May, June, July? But remember, it's based off just a couple things. And like, just like sometimes when we talk about market behavior, it's speculative. So that's the reality of the business. So if you have an app on your phone that says that it can predict the weather every day for 45 days, or I actually have one on my phone that says it can predict it for 11 months, it's garbage. Thank goodness I didn't pay for either of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the uh, I think the example you used at that presentation was that uh, that huge snowstorm in in Minnesota mm -hmm. uh, that we had a while back, and and you you backtracked it twenty one days and twenty one days before it was a, a a little storm cell over the Sea of Japan or something <laughs> like that that hadn't even become a typhoon yet, and yeah, just. <laughs> Really, really fascinating to, to, to see how that progressed. Yep, you're exactly right. And, and, and that's what happens. You know, in fact, this big storm system that we're all watching for next week. So, you know, we're talking about here like it should show up on like March 29th or 30th. Today, where it currently sits is it is a very small, what we call short wave that just crossed the Aleutian Islands it still has to develop downstream, get over the mountains, and then redevelop in the plains. It's amazing that we can even see that it's a possibility, let alone have some consistency in the models. To be honest with you, modern weather prediction is just a, it's a marvel of science that we're even capable of doing what we do. It's, it's pretty cool. Wow, that's, that's interesting. So you, uh, when we talked a little bit there before we started recording, you mentioned the the safrina crop down in Brazil, which is their second kind of their smaller uh, uh, second corn crop. Um, what's that looking like, and and how you how are you seeing that impacting us? Yeah, you know, it's funny to call it a small crop still, even though that's what safrina well, yeah. safrina means. You know, that's what it means: yeah. second small crop. Because it's now worth about what three point one billion bushels. It's huge yeah. uh, compared yep. to what it, we we didn't even talk about it in like the nineties or even really the early two thousands. But here it is, and it went in quick. So they got the beans out fast. They got the corn planted, and the northern growing areas where a lot of it is put in have had decent weather. They went over drier as of late, but that would be like being a little drier than average through June for us in Illinois. And the moisture is trying to return as we go into the next three to four weeks, which would mean that it'd get rain right about the time that it needed it. But I don't hear a lot of reason to think that this safrina crop is going to be, uh, you know, truly bin busting. In other words, if the market thinks it's somewhere around 112 million metric ton, I, it doesn't seem like it's got the legs on it to be 115 or something bigger than that, which would be unexpected because there have been some issues south. Remember, there was a big drought in southern Brazil at the beginning of the mm -hmm. season. Yep. And, and then now we've put just tons of rain over it. So they went from like famine to feast. And, and it's, it's just, uh, it's been a bit of a, um, a you know, a really tumultuous for South America's growing season this year, which has been a part of, a part of the really supportive prices we've seen. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of variables at play here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how things how things shake out down there. Um, so let me let's just kind of kind of recap here because this you know the farmers that are listening, this is really what they're going to really care about and want to try to take away. So if you feel like right now, from a soil moisture standpoint, I think we're off to a pretty good start. Mm-hmm. Uh, potentially, uh, uh, potentially good chance to, to, um, get the crop off to a good start, but we, you see an elevated drought risk, uh, kind of going into the early summer. Yeah. And let me explain to you, I guess what I see. So we'll start off with planting, right? We're still, um, you know, especially where you are, you know, we're, we're still, uh, looking at probably an April 20th. That would be the climatological last frost date on average. So, you know, we're still quite a ways away from getting the crop in the ground, but we do have decent soil moisture at this point. And we got more storm systems coming through. that are going to help with that, which is good. I do anticipate that we will be seeing some tighter windows, especially through the whole of the Eastern Corn Belt getting planted. So why do I think there might be some risk for drought later? Okay. If between now and June, we see drought area expand in the plains, in other words, it gets into Iowa, gets into Missouri, gets into Arkansas, or goes north into Minnesota and and South Dakota. If it expands, that would increase our risk later of having that drought continue to creep east. If it contracts, that's, of course, a great thing. And right now, based on what I have today, when we're doing this on March 25th, I've got two more systems lined up that might come through and help back that drought off. I'm talking about the drought that's in the central plains. To be honest, that'd be great. Good for them. Good for us. We'd like to see that. But the number one thing folks need to watch is, you know, we talked about La Nina earlier. I really want folks to think more about what's going on with the ocean temperatures in the Gulf of Alaska and along the West Coast. If we see those temperatures, ocean temperatures there, stay cool or get cooler. Okay, that's a part of a circulation we call the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. Long story short is we've studied that going back to the 1850s. And what we know is if those waters get colder and colder with time, that would take our drought risk right now of a 30% chance of developing up to a 60% chance of developing for this upcoming summer. Now, here's the good news for everybody that's listening. I don't have a single long range forecast model that says they're going to get colder. But what did we learn a few minutes ago when we talked? (laughs) These long-range forecasts are speculative. They could be completely wrong and have it backwards, which means that's why we watch it every day. Keep an eye on those ocean temperatures that are there in the Gulf of Alaska. And if you just ask, why is that the case? If the colder you get the colder the water in that place, the colder the water is, the jet stream likes to dip south of it. If it dips over the west, guess where it rises? Over the Midwest. And that's what leads to ridging, drought development. We've had it happen. It happened most recently in 2012. So that's what we have to watch for. Yeah. And I've, I, I know know, from a complete layman's perspective, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I see some patterns that, that seem very similar to 2012. And, and I've heard some other guys say that, and it's obviously, I think it's a concern out there and, and uh, very interesting to hear some of the, uh, uh, some of the drivers behind that. Um, so what else, anything else that's on your mind that we haven't really covered here, Eric? Yeah, sure. I mean, so, so just, just cause you brought up 2012, let's, let's think about that, right? 2012 did not have drought as extensive as we have right now in the Western United States. 2012 did have much more extensive drought across the Southeast. And of course it was anchored over Texas, Oklahoma, Colorado. So there are some differences, 
Um, one thing that I'll be watching for very carefully also is what's going on over there in the Atlantic, because the ocean temperatures there are still quite warm. You know, we've had back to back pretty active hurricane seasons. And while last year we didn't have one cut them up the gut of the Mississippi River, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for us to have early storm systems. We've had them, believe it or not, as early as late May come right up into the I states. Uh, Alberto did it in 2018. So we're just going to have to watch to see if the 2022 hurricane season is going to be more active and give us a risk of having, you know, either some perfectly timed rain, which would be great, or that untimely late season event that, you know, disrupts harvest. But boy, what I don't want is I don't want another Hurricane Ida. Remember, Ida went right up against the Mississippi River, took a whole bunch of, of natural gas and, and oil uh, extraction offline, plus the refinement facilities. It hit the yep. Mississippi hard. We lost production of nitrogen, glyphosate, all, all these important uh, you know things we use. We're still feeling the ramifications of that. So I did want to mention something about this upcoming hurricane season, possibly once again being an active one. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's there's a, a lot of things to, to keep our eyes on and, and uh, really appreciate the insight. And it really kind of helps us maybe understand what we need to be looking for. And, and uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed that, you know, that we get off to a good start and that uh, we continue to get the moisture that we need. I, I'm right there with you. That's exactly what I want to. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Eric, again, thanks for taking the time to share your insight. Eric Snodgrass, Science Fellow with uh, Nutrient down in Champaign, Illinois. Um, appreciate the time, Eric. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me on. And I think if you're, uh, if you're willing, we'll probably try to bring you back later this year, maybe when we get closer to harvest, and we'll see what things look like then. Yeah, that sounds great. We'll see how I did with the spring forecast next time you talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll take notes, and then, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe we'll revisit some of that. So, right. No, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time on the next episode of the Illinois Agronomy Update. Thank you.